The Ambitious Mum Podcast. Different women, different lives, different ambitions. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and every week I'll be having honest conversations about ambition. Follow what I love. Don't get overwhelmed by the bigger picture of life. Forget all of that. Right now, you've got to do an essay. Motherhood. People who, who are givers by nature, there's always an expectation. Anytime there's fury and rage or disappointment, there'll be an expectation. And everything in between. We'll explore how their ambitions and careers have evolved while being a parent. And I'll be digging deep, acknowledging the taboos, the sacrifices, and the sheer grit and perseverance working mums don't talk about. The challenge with work on the self is there isn't this instant gratification. It takes time and it takes patience. So welcome back to the Ambitious Mum podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host. I'm delighted to be back. I've got a brilliant guest this week. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about her before we get going. So her name is Keely Taverner and she's a psychotherapist. But her story is fascinating and I... I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but it starts in Ikea and it most definitely doesn't end in Ikea. And she was a mature student. She really railed against her upbringing and her conditioning and what she had seen growing up. And she decided that she wanted to make a real go of her life. And it came with pretty much an epiphany moment that she talks about. But she now helps other women and, and men release themselves from narcissists. She really hones in on helping empaths with self-protection. She's got a whole course on that which she talks about and she's been all over the place. She's all over the press and um, radio but her purpose is helping people find their, their true selves, helping them with unlocking their potential, unlocking perhaps what they've been conditioned with, what they believe that they, you know, they deserved, and actually breaking free from all of that. So I really think that you'll find this conversation very helpful. We go into lots of different avenues. I loved speaking to Keila, I loved hearing her story, to be honest, because it was so inspiring. And she's gone on to do lots of studying and she really believes in the fact that anyone can do whatever they want if they have um, some self-belief and often self-belief doesn't just come quite naturally we do have to work at it so she she gives us some ideas of how we can do that so I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Keely and I and she's so straight talking I just loved it I loved chatting to her straight from the beginning so here's my conversation with Keely Taverner. So hi Keely thank you so much for joining me on the Ambitious Mum podcast I I'm really looking forward to chatting more because after reading your story, I was like, this woman needs to come on my podcast because <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about from lots of different angles. I'm just going to go straight in there because I feel like there's a lot of different angles to cover. But what I wanted to touch on was you're a psychotherapist now, but this was not always the way. And I think what's so inspiring about your story is that it gives people hope and it gives people like the knowledge that it can actually happen to anyone. From what I was reading, you were a single mum, you were working in Ikea, you didn't come from university or formal education. Your your life, you as you believed, was mapped out for you in one direction. But you made a conscious choice to do a, a U-turn, whatever you want to call it. 
handbrake turn in your, in your journey and you yeah. and you decided that you were going to go and study as a psychotherapist. Can you give us a very abridged version of what happened and where you were at in that journey? I fell in love really young. I didn't understand why love hurt so much. I think that just really baffled me. I think for various reasons, I, I, I kind of just floated through life. I wasn't particularly encouraged. And then I think the real crux for me came when I was a mum in a difficult, in an unhealthy relationship and kept going back. So for me, the inspiration really came from watching Oprah one day. Yanla Van Sant was on. And she was just giving me some truth lines that were really shaking me to my core. And that's what led me to read my first self-help book, which was In the Meantime by Yanla Van Sant. And then the next book I read was hers, which was called Yesterday I Cried. And that was her journey from kind of single mom, despair, to taking a journey to educate herself. And that really spoke to me. And whilst I'd never done exceptionally well at school ever, I knew I could do more than get yellow bags, deal with the reshop and tell customers to leave the yellow bags behind, please. I knew I could do more than that. And so that's what gently began to inspire me to go back to uh, college where I did uh, an access to social sciences course and an access course prepares you for a degree and so it all just became really small stepping stones and I could always just think you know even when I got to college it was like well it's only from September to December let's just see how it goes then you soon realize well, everybody that starts they soon start dropping off and same with my degree I just always chunked down and never saw it as a four-year degree which it was because I had work placement I just saw it as trying to get through each essay, each semester, and it all came together. And I think I was deliberate about doing a degree with a placement because I hadn't had any experience in the helping profession. So deliberately selecting a degree with a placement then gave me an opportunity to work hands-on. And that's when I then had that experience to add to my CV. I think that advice of chunking it down is so vital because we can be scared off from the offset, can't we? Like the thought of it is so overwhelming and scary. And then we just don't do it. Anything, whether it's writing a book or starting a new relationship and you jump ahead like 50 steps, don't you? And I mean, I'm guilty of this. I'm constantly in my head going, well, how am I going to do this? And how's that yeah. going to happen? And then, and then I'm like, you know what? Sod it. I'm not doing it because it's too scary and too big. And so that chunking it down into tiny little steps, I think is vital, isn't it? And I can presume that's probably what got you going. Like you just went from term to term, essay to essay. And with it, you know, just kept following what I liked. Follow what I love and chunk right down. Don't get overwhelmed by the bigger picture. Like forget all of that. Right now you've got to do an essay, get that done and then focus on the next thing, focus on the next thing. And in that process, you know, a degree, the thing is, I think the degree is the hardest part because the degree is got other subjects within it that you may not necessarily like. But it was from doing all those subjects that I could then say, okay, I want to specialize in that area. So when I did my master's, I was just specializing in an area that I liked rather than having to read all these other subjects. So that was even more beneficial to me. So even though it sounds bigger, a master's, it was actually easier than a degree. Because what I was had the master's in? So I did a master's in person-centered psychotherapy. 
because when at Brunel, I discovered that I loved the mental health element, but it was the theorists that spoke to me. So the theorist, Carl Rogers' humanistic theories that people are the expert on their own life and you, you need to be a companion to people to help them see how they can best help themselves, that they can discover their potentiality. That spoke to my experience. And it also was a broader way of looking at individuals. So it also took the social context into consideration rather than just a kind of thinking your beliefs, change your beliefs, you change your behaviours, you change your life. Actually, Rogerian therapy was also about looking at the cultural, political climate that people are in and how that either limits or promotes your potentiality. And as a, a grassroots girl trying to break stereotypes of a, a single mom and going down to the council and signing up for housing and being in temporary housing for the next 20 odd years, that for me was so fundamental to my to my journey because I needed to exercise delayed gratification for what I wanted for myself. Talking about that, was there anyone in your life or your community that you could model from? Were you the first person that you knew that was doing something along these lines? Or did you have a mentor? Did you were you literally sort of breaking boundaries and barriers in what you knew to become the person that you are now? I think fundamentally a mixed heritage. So I do have access to what people would call white privilege. My dad is middle class. However, I never grew up with my father. And also I had an auntie who was also a psychotherapist. And I'll just say that my, my mother's side of the family weren't born into privilege. She worked incredibly hard to get where she had. I had resources around me but fundamentally, you know, I lived in a little council estate in northwest London. So whilst I might go to my dad's on the weekend for five or so hours, it wasn't my life. It wasn't my norm. My norm was northwest 10, growing up, seeing what I grew up. So that became the way that I viewed the world. I knew quite quickly, but especially by the time I got to university, I needed, I needed help because I was understanding, you know, I was getting to understand academia but the nuances of change and rejection and feeling like an observer in places where I used to go and indulge and have great fun, but now I'm kind of looking at it from a critical perspective, kind of made me become an outsider. And I think that I wanted change, but I felt isolated. And I think I wasn't prepared for that. I guess I thought people would think it was a great thing that I was trying to better myself. So when I was met with rejection or, or ridicule or you're too deep, I just found that incredibly difficult. And at the same time, that was when I was introduced to Lara Jonah, who was, well, I decided she was going to be my mentor, whether she wanted it or not. <laughs> um, she was a black psychologist in Wormwood Scrubs, where I got my first placement. And she just took me under her wing, really. And I could talk to her about the kind of difficulties I was having now as a single mom struggling with friends and, and the change and old behaviours, going back to old places and not feeling the same, but not feeling comfortable in new circles. I think she was really instrumental in helping me to navigate that terrain, really. And I yeah. needed that. It sounds hard. It sounds really hmm. difficult. I get the impression you were in a bit of a no man's land for a while because you'd progressed from your original life and you were not sure where to position yourself. And, and I'm wondering if people who you grew up with and your friends and your family, maybe it was quite triggering for them because you've mirrored 
behavior that anyone could be potential of if they just put in some hard graft and determination and focus. And maybe that made them feel uncomfortable that they weren't doing the same. It's very difficult, isn't it? Because you become a target and you don't quite realize why. I remember once a dear friend saying to me, Key, you've got to learn to be strong. You're too weak. And I really battled with that. Then realizing, well, actually vulnerability is an incredible strength. That's what I was being trained to do when I began to train as a psychotherapist. You, you look deeply inwards. You can articulate what goes on for you. So it's not being suppressed nor repressed. Yet, when I was speaking about topics that people found uncomfortable, I felt shut down or that I should be different. And that's a massive challenge. And it's, it's a part of the unintended consequence of change that you don't quite realize all the ripples that will happen. And that's fine now. I mean, now I prepare others for it. I call it the chasm of change. You begin to start, you make progress, and then you find yourself in the chasm. That can be incredibly isolating and alone. But for me, I always knew the challenge is what am I going back to? I know what I'm going back to because I'm trying to leave that. And so with knowing what I was leaving, change just became the only way because even though I'm, I may not like where I was right now, I knew what I was going back to. So I'm just going to work with this uncertainty. I'm going to work with it. I had kids, you know, and that was my biggest worry that if I didn't, my kids would, would do the same. And, and that was far more alarming for me. I could really resonate to that because when you're in that place of change, it is quite scary because there's certain people that you don't connect with anymore and you feel drawn to new people. And even though you're excited about the change and you're excited about what you're doing and you feel more fulfilled maybe from a profession or just from a life perspective things do have to evolve and you have to release certain things as well you can't keep hold of everything and change at the same time and it can create uncomfortable feelings and circumstances and what you mentioned just then about your friend saying that you're too sensitive and this is what I wanted to talk a little bit about was I know you do a lot of work with empaths and I would love to know a little bit more about this work and why you decided to work in this area, because it was only up until recently I realized that I, too, was an empath. And you didn't understand. I was like, why am I always so sensitive? Why do I feel things so deeply? Like all these different things. And then I read, I remember reading an article going, oh, my God, that's me. Wow. And that really helped explain a lot. Can you give the listeners just a bit of an insight into being an empath and what that potentially creates in your life, good and bad? Well, I think for me, I was always attracting relations, one way relationships, intimate relationships. And my most devastating intimate relationship was with my daughter's father. And so that also because I was working in prisons, I began to do to understand personality disorders, which helped me to understand narcissism. Oh my gosh, that was my life changer because I could read all about them. I could go on training about, you know, learning about narcissism. But what then failed to kind of materialize. And that was where I specialized as a therapist, you know, helping people who've been in narcissistic abusive relationships. But actually there was so much more to the story, which is about what are the people that actually entertain, have relationships, become the wives, the boyfriends, the partners of these individuals. And that was really where for me, I turned my attention rather than focusing on, on narcissism and narcissistic individuals. 
So that was really, for me, a personal journey. The work I do on myself impacts on my business. There's no two ways about it. And I'm not going to hold on to understanding about empathy and then just still work with purely narcissism. No, I'm actually going to encourage people to think, actually, you need to think more broadly. You're very overly, because this is what happens when people come into therapy who have been in narcissistic abusive relationships. They're highly primed about the narcissist and what they've done and what's been done to them, but lack awareness about what they do that co-creates that dynamic. And so that's where I really began to flip my focus is to help people who are highly empathic or highly sensitive people to understand what it is that we do that creates that toxic, unhealthy dynamic. And so that's really where I'm at right now, fundamentally teaching people how to best to protect their nature. Not that it, it's not a curse to care. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're weak, but actually it's a true gift. It's a wonderful gift. You look at any devastation that happens and you'll see the empathic, highly empathic people come together. I worked on the Grenfell project and that was a devastating time, but also the kindness, the care, the compassion, the going above and beyond that is so fundamental to kind of how empaths operate always shows in any devastation. And so that's really passionate. I'm passionate about helping people to understand that rather than just waxing lyrical about what's been done and the treasure trove of knowledge people have developed from watching YouTube videos about this topic. Well, well let's flip that back. Let's focus on you. That's where that's, it's, it's very empowering because like you don't want to be in victim mode. And I've never been in a relationship with a narcissist before, but a very good friend of mine has, and I've, we've seen we've seen it all pan out and develop. And the problem is, is that you can go into victim mode. Not that she did, but you can. And like you, you say, it's working on ourselves to empower ourselves with the tools and the strategies. So we can, I guess it's protecting like our energy, our boundaries. It's almost like you complete, your soul's like completely exposed, isn't it? When you're an empath. And even though it is very good to want to give and be compassionate and caring, and like you say, you know, I can only imagine what some amazing people must have come out during um, the Grenfell disaster and other situations, but we also have to protect ourselves, don't we, for our family, our kids, our loved ones. Is that something that you teach your, your patients, your clients, so they can be authentic, but also have these boundaries that they can bring down when they need to yeah most definitely it's one of the reasons why I've created the empath self-protection course because my ambition because for all the other courses I've created people just keep asking me oh what about the empath one and I just kind of thought all right well fine I'll do it but fundamentally the reality is people who identify as being highly empathic are not great at noticing what their needs are fundamentally they are attuned to everybody else's needs and this is one of the reasons why when empaths aren't aware, you can become full of resentment and bitterness because you never get back what you give. And this is why we must check when we give, what is your expectation? Expectations usually are an undercurrent in any gift giving situation. And if we're not exposing what our expectations are, then this is one of the ways that we become filled with resentment and bitterness because we're actually unaware, but there's always an expectation. Anytime there's fury and rage or disappointment, 
there'll be an expectation. So I fundamentally encourage people who, who are givers by nature, well, what is your expectation? What was your expectation? Which is one of the reasons why I encourage empaths to work out what is it that you need? Because often you give and you hope that other people will see your needs, but they don't. You go check yourself, what do you need? And how can you provide that for yourself rather than wishing, hoping that other people will get it? So when you talk about expectation, what do you mean in that respect? Do you mean if, say, someone offers to do a good deed? I'm just going to give an, an example. Oh, um, I'm going to pick your kids up from school on a Wednesday, every Wednesday, because a friend is working late and that friend doesn't reciprocate. What's the expectation for offering to be that person that gives but doesn't receive the favour back in return? So say what will happen is you do the Wednesday pickup, but you might be going out on a Friday night and you've got an emergency and your phone, your phone Jan up and say, Jan, Jan, can you do for her? Oh, no, I can't. You might now be feeling like, but look all the things I do for her. Look all the things I do for her and she can't even return the favour. Now that's where, now if that becomes to fill you with rage, remember by the time people come to me, depression is starting to take in. So you, you have to start to scrutinise. What are the situations where you give or go? And remember, empaths can go above and beyond, right? What are those situations where you give and now you're getting filled with resentment? What is the expectation? The expectation is reciprocity. And if that doesn't come back, if we're with highly selfish people or if we've got self-esteem issues, right, and we think that by giving, someone will like us, someone will validate us, and sometimes they do, but sometimes you might get intermittent validation and then you can go into overdrive, which may marry an unhelpful attachment pattern from parents, daddy issues, mummy issues. So, so that dynamic can play out with the expectation. So when we're enraged, when someone doesn't reciprocate, that's where I always say to myself, well, what was the expectation? When I began to ask myself, what's my expectation in this situation? And if I'm very brutally honest with myself, so it depends on how honest you are with yourself. You know, lots of people are in denial with their own selves, right? Which is, must, is a head stress. But if you can be really brutally honest with yourself, you'll start to notice what your expectations are. And that's where for me personally, then I have to ask myself, well, do I want to continue behaving in that way? That's it, because clearly, I'm giving with an expectation. And if that's not being met, I'm now enraged. So either I give and endeavor not to have an expectation or I recline. I begin to recline from that gift giving. And that's the conscious choice. That's where your power lies by making a conscious choice to give and noticing expectations. They say expectations is the mother of all disappointments, but it, can, it happens so easily. It's so unconscious. That for me personally, I teach people that when the rage happens, that's where you have to, what's the expectation? You see, that was a, an example. But what happens if you have expectation from a parent, a partner, a friend? That's just part and parcel of life. Say you expect your mum to be a mum or you expect a partner to be supportive and helpful. So it's not actually going and doing loads of excessive people pleasing things. It's just you know, a standard expectation of being a good parent, a good partner, a good sibling. Where does that leave you? Do you just become a fundamentally cold kind of robotic person? Not Do you all. lose faith in humanity or how, where's it, where does that protective mechanism come in where you can still 
feel and enjoy hum human contact and connection, but not feel constantly disappointed by people? Well, I think humans are inherently selfish. <laughs> you know, people are loyal to their own needs, right? And while that may sound um, dismal, I think it's actually quite freeing. You know, we only call our mechanic when our car's not working. Otherwise, I don't call. <laughs> you know, and business has taught me that. Like, people need me and then they don't, and then they need me and they don't. And actually, I, I wonder sometimes if, if actually life is like that. You know, that people need you when they need you, and when they don't, they don't. And I think there's a freedom about noticing, okay, so what was my expectation of mum? Well, is that a disproportionate expectation? Is that a Disney? And this is often happens to people, especially empaths. We can live in fantasy island. We can have hopeless hope. And it's hopeless hope and living on fantasy island that mean that we create these expectations of others that are not based in reality. And so as long as you're living in the fantasies of your mind, hoping, wishing that people would be how you want them to be, you're setting yourself up for problems. Can you accept mum, for example, as she is with her limitations? Because that's the one you got. Not like your best friend James down the road who bakes cakes from scratch and so on and so forth. No, this is the mum you've got. And that's about acceptance. And people don't like acceptance. But I find it one of the most freeing concepts because it, it helps me to understand my hope. It helps me to, to, to relinquish hope, often a hope based on a fantasy because I'm creative and my, my hope is, it is flavoursome in there, hey, real bells and whistles. But actually those hopes when reality hits has been, have been difficult for me in the past or I'd avoid reality, distort reality, sweep situations under the rug. Therapeutic, we know when you, what you resist persists. So how can I accept people as they are and love them as they are and check myself? Yeah. It's that disproportionate expectation that causes people problems. Yeah, that's really strong, powerful stuff. I mean, when I work with people using EFT, tapping, it's very much about acceptance and accepting the situation the way it is, despite it not being what we want. and. Very typically, we start a session, we start with what we call the setup statement, and we say what's going on, who, whoever's bothering us, whatever's bothering us. And at the end, it's like, and I love and accept myself anyway, or I choose to love and accept myself anyway. And very typically, if it's a first time session, the client will cry just on that one sentence, because it's that freedom, it's that, that freeing recognition of, okay, I just, I have to just accept the way it is. And you know, this person's not going to change, this situation's going to change, but maybe I can have more inner peace with it. And it's very much about the awareness, isn't it, of, of the situation and then the acceptance. And I've done quite a lot of work on this myself and I help other clients as well, because once we have that freedom in our head of that inner peace of recognition that no matter what we do, it's not going to change. That person's not going to change, but we can change internally. Then it's a bit like, okay, life can get a bit easier now. Like that expectation goes. I think it's beautiful. But the challenge you have is human ego. And empaths aren't good at addressing their ego. They'll wax lyrical about narcissist ego. But empaths do not like to let go either. 
<laughs> We've invested lots of love in people and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, or when unhealthy relationship dynamics are not working. So that, that takes us into ego and why we want to hold on. Uh, holding on like, oh, I'm not going to let go. Right. Yeah. So acceptance as, 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 as we articulate is beautiful. But the process, the experience of that can be very difficult for people to, to, to truly begin to let go. And that's ego. That's all about me, me, me. Wanting things, wanting life on your terms. And, and for many people who might be very cerebral, cognitive, who like to be in control, we know that that can take them into, well, at worst, rumination, you know, where years later they're still ruminating on, um, on, on situations that have been difficult for them. So the process is really beautiful. It's really easy to articulate, but the journey through that is a very different yeah. for folk. To let go of resentment and grudges and Ooh. anger is... is- very hard and 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 I think resentment I see that a lot there's this like harboring that is actually more beneficial to hold on to than to let go of because then you're kind of like well he did this to me or she said this to me and she treated me like this and you're almost like on a um you've got yourself on a pedestal a little bit as the better person most definitely we like to be on that pedestal don't we and I think what you say is like ego it's the human that it's we just like to have that kind of one over someone but if we come back to awareness and I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I do have a bit of an idealistic perspective in life and I do like to believe that there will be a happy ending for people if we recognize that people aren't going to change certain circumstances may not change whether that's you know health or financial whatever that is Do you also recognise that people can, once they've released that, there is the opportunity for more inner peace or inner acceptance? Yeah, but I think it depends on the individual and how much pain they're in. I know for for many clients I've worked with, there's only so far down the rabbit's hole they want to go. And I have no problem with that. You know, people have to, you know, the challenge with any change is power dynamics, right? It's all good and well. They talk about speak your truth. Well, actually, it's not helpful for everybody to speak their truth, especially if you're in certain situation where there's power dynamics. And if that power, we take the prince, for example, you've spoken his truth. Well, there's consequences for that. You speak your truth, fine. We've taken your security away from you. Now, now you know, and, and that's the challenge with speaking your truth. So there's also this, the, the, you, one has to be discerning when you speak your truth as well. So I think it depends on a person's individual situations. Um, it depends on people's resources. It depends on their capacity to delay gratification as well. You know, so it really requires a holistic situation, a whole realistic review, you know, assessment of someone's situation. Because in some situations you have to kiss the ass before you kick it, as my grandmother would say, you know? And that, you know, when I think about the film Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts, she does that really well. She knows she has to play the game until she gets to a point where she can make her escape. And so whilst I respect your regard for wanting things to have happy endings, sometimes they don't. And they don't, but they do in a way. Sometimes you win when you lose and you lose when you win. And that can be a beautiful journey to go on, nevertheless. 
but it's very individual and it's very unique. So it's, it takes a, an assessment of somebody's situation and also the blocks you hit, someone's defense, someone's relationship with fear is always fundamental to me as a therapist because someone's relationship with fear is fundamental to how far they're prepared to go because the, to my mind, the antidote to fear is faith. Now, faith requires you to step into the unknown, but if you always have a desire to be in control and to always be in the know, then there are gonna be limitations. And that's fine, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that, but I'll always help people to understand that. I, I'd like to think that I tell people, explain the process to people so they're acutely aware of where they're at, why they're at, you know, so that they go away. And often people just come back like, hey, I'm ready, I get it now. Like, ah. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? You can only help people when they're ready. Two years down the line, you suddenly get that epiphany, don't you? That you'd be like, oh, okay, now that's that, that's why I couldn't do it then, but I'm now ready today. So much faith that's needed to change. And sometimes the fear does override that. And we see that whether it's leaving a relationship, changing careers, moving countries, whatever that is, there has to be a certain level of, of faith and trust that you are kind of like surrendering a bit to the unknown and hoping that things are going to work out. And funny enough, I was just interviewing someone before, an amazing lady who's going to be a guest. And she was telling me that, you know, as women, we've got this power that men don't have as much as we do in our intuition. And I know that obviously you are a, a psychotherapist, you're, you're science-based, you've trained, but I'm a huge believer that there is an opportunity to, to combine both of, of the science-based therapies and also this kind of more, I don't know, like this well, other spirituality that we can combine the two and and use our intuition to to trust that, we are going down a path that we're meant to go down, but we might not know the full disclosure of it. In my school, we call that transcendental psychology. So there is a whole school of psychology that is dedicated to the spiritual realm. It just doesn't get the press it deserves, I believe. And fundamentally, I'll be very frank, I'm from a disadvantaged background. People from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to have a spiritual relationship because for so many of us, we haven't known how the hell we're gonna do with so many things. From our disadvantaged viewpoint, we've had to live by faith. And it's around us in, in music, in the stories of our grandmothers who still go to church. So whether we've chosen to opt out of organized religion or we just have the spiritual relationship, it's fundamentally always been there. And that for me has been fundamental to where I am right now. And I think there is a new awakening and a dawning for people about, you know, I mean, look at what we're going through with the pandemic. We're relying on science. Science does not have the answers. And so for people who have been living in the West, where we have kind of like sidelined, you know, traditional religion, because we've had faith in science, we thought we could plan for the rest of our lives. What's happened is we've had to start to live day by day. The same principles that we found upon in developing countries. And so the shift to understanding that humans have no control you know, anxiety, depression is often caused by people living in their tiny minds and thinking that they have all the answers and you don't because your tiny mind is saying this or your tiny mind is saying that, which is one of the reasons why I work in an experiential way. I truly understand that I can explain processes to clients. They get it 
but they don't get it until they experience it. Like, oh, I have to tell you what happened. I got it. I absolutely got it. That revelation is beautiful. But experiential living, you know, I know when people are cut off from their, their intuition, when people are cut off from their intuition, they are likely to become highly anxious because you're trying to work everything out with your head. And what happens? You take zero action. You think about the conundrum, a hundred and million one ways it could go, yet you've never sipped to the tea. You've never tried it, but you'll think about it for a hundred and million ways and this could happen, that could happen, and what, but you've never sipped the tea. Sip the tea and then you'll know. But the, but the, the action part, because the fear is so, becomes so entrenched. And that's, that's the unpicking for people, helping people to understand that process and helping the awareness to grow, you know, the awareness that there is no, from, as long as you're not taking action, your tiny mind is in control and your mind is a limited resource. There's far more wisdom to people than just mind. We're so conditioned and educated, especially in, in this Western world that we live in, yeah. that everything is involved with the brain. The brain holds the answer to everything. And the more I've been work I've been doing and the more I'm speaking to amazing people through the podcast and the different courses that I've done, that I've just more and more, it's like I keep just hearing the same kind of repetitive way in different say it's you know said in different capacities of just drop from the head down to your heart and just think think or not think sorry feel feel what you want that very simple procedure of taking one or two minutes every single day of just closing your eyes taking some breaths actively it's like a visualization of like dropping I find this so hard because I live in my head I'm like the rumination queen so I have to actively exercise this muscle of of visually dropping from my head and kind of mm -hmm. feeling in my heart space what I want to do what I want to say no to what I want to lean into where my boundaries are and and, and it's hard work but I, it's definitely getting easier and easier and now I take compared to sort of two years ago where everything was my brain head focused this cerebral kind of conditioning is now is like what does that feel like what does that feel like in my body now? does that feel expansive does it feel restrictive and it just feel a bit kind of woo woo but you can feel like if someone asks you to do something or commit to something and all of a sudden your shoulders get super tight yeah and kind of like crunch up that's your body telling you that you don't really want to do that that you're doing a should but if someone says to you, like, do you fancy doing this? And we're going to do a cool Instagram live and we can talk about this. And you kind of think like, yeah, that sounds really fun. Like the playfulness, the childlike kind of, you know, part of you just kind of goes, yeah. And then, you know, so I, I it is very much about um, flexing that muscle a little bit. Even yeah. when you're an adult and you've got responsibilities and life's hard, we can start noticing that difference between what feels expansive and what feels restrictive. And we can mm. make decisions. I've tried to do this myself. Navigating this life suddenly gets a little bit easier because it feels like you've got little signposts to start recognizing like you say you're going through a forest and you see a little weenie sign on a tree and it goes you know right or left you've kind of got those now in your life 
exactly. by tapping into your body. Yeah, I find the whole thing fascinating of, of knowing that there is a whole science-based school of thought that can marry together with this very ancient Eastern way of living. It's far from woo-woo. It's the original foundations of what has evolved to where we are. Science derives from that. Science is man's attempt to find order, order in the in the beautiful chaos that is 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 creation, creativity. I know that we can take action. So sometimes there's this concept of we're not in control of, of anything, but we can lean into our alignment and our purpose, what we believe is our purpose, and we can take aligned action. So we can make steps. So like with yourself, you weren't going to become a psychotherapist overnight. You had to take action, sign up to the first course, keep going, handing in your dissertations. It wasn't going to all be presented to you. You know, you had to do that hard work to be the mm-hmm. person that you are now. But you clearly had this insight into what you were here for and whether you carry on being a psychotherapist for the rest of your life you now have this grounding that will take you to different places but I can imagine that you will constantly be in this healing world of helping people so it's not just like okay close your eyes and ask for guidance and it's all going to be given given to you on a plate no but we we do have to take action and sometimes it's not going to be easy and sometimes it's it's going to be quite difficult and uncomfortable and scary but essentially if we don't like you say it's either we stagnate and we don't grow and we just stay that same person we we were at the age of 20 50 80 and we die not achieving or being the person we're meant to be or we lean into that discomfort and hope for the best. I, I think I'm giving myself a bit of a pep talk there because I, I kind of go backwards and forwards of like, oh, that's too scary. I don't want to do that. Oh, that's too big. Um, or that's too like out there. And what are people going to say? But I have, I, I know that I have to keep giving myself that that nudge because I know that I want to fulfill more things and bigger things. I feel like I'm constantly on this edge of a cliff like clinging on by my fingernails and I've got to keep pushing myself. Um, mm. But I guess I'm, t- I'm saying this because if people want to change, it's not all going to come to you. It's not going to just appear, but there are ways for you to, to make it happen that even though it does feel scary, you will know that you're doing the right thing. Because like you said, that you said at the beginning, it's that small, those small chunks, chunk everything down, Make it as accessible as possible, practical, realistic, and take the next step. But fundamentally is energy. Yeah. But so many people that are depressed, their energy is going into situations where they have no control. If your energy is focused on what you can't control, where does the energy go? I believe it just repels back into you. So it's about, okay, so this situation has happened and we don't like it. Lockdown's a perfect situation, right? Situation that's happened. We don't necessarily like it. But what do we do with our energy? And energy is everything. We're energetic beings. Where you focus your energy, where your energy goes, attention flows. That creates the law of attraction. People want to know how to manifest. People are manifesting. They're just manifesting what they don't want. Mm -hmm. You ain't got no problem manifesting, sister. You just manifest (laughs) what you don't want. You understand the law of attraction perfectly because you energize what you don't want. That's why what you don't want is in your life. Now, if you want to change, you redistribute your energy. 
redistribute. But the challenge people have is patience. We live in a world of instant gratification. Uber Eats, you want this, you want that, fine. You tap the button, it's there. Amazon Prime, at your door next day. You can't even believe it. So quick. So the challenge with work on the self is there isn't this instant gratification. It takes time and it takes patience. Like most things in nature, it has to be nurtured. It has to be tended to. It has to be watered. Yeah. We compare ourselves to nature. It feels like, oh, such a revelation. But we look at nature and we have seasons and we see like the blossom at the moment coming out and then that falls and then something else grows. And you've always, it's this constant interchange, isn't it? And like you say, it's like we're just an extension of nature. And it just seems ridiculous that as humans, we don't see ourselves connected. And I believe there is a school of thought that is gaining more traction now that we are recognizing that we are just these small beings in a huge universe and connected to the seasons and flow and ebb and you have good weeks and bad weeks and and it's just all interchangeable. And that's what helps me. I have to say that's definitely helped me. You know, if I'm having a bad week, two weeks and things aren't going the way I want them to go, I now have this trust and this faith that even though I'm feeling like this now, I know it's going to get better because yeah, well, that's that, what happens. Yeah, that's the seasons, right? No, nothing stays. This is why I tell people, do not call yourself depressed. Don't, ident- mm. don't, don't make your whole I- psychology, your whole identity and emotion. Somebody recently said to me, oh, I'm prone to bouts of depression. I said, really? Well, I'm prone to bouts of joy. <laughs> oh, we laughed. We laughed. <laughs> because clearly this is a way that somebody describes themselves which means that you will then, your behavior will marry that. Why wouldn't you describe yourself as prone to bouts of joy? What would that mean for somebody? How can one describe themselves as depressed? That's an entire emotion. I don't hear people, I describe myself as happy. I'm just happy. Any emotion, you visit an emotion and you can't stay in any emotion for an over a long period of time. You stay for a season and then you leave. That's life challenge with so many especially in the west is we want to be happy but you don't get happiness without sadness you don't get joy without sorrow so this is the bipolarities we need them life is built upon them you don't get the empath without the narcissist i wouldn't have discovered my own empathy without being through that trauma which is now i've made that pain purposeful which is the secret to life pain is essential pain pain happens to every one of us Every one of us, no matter class, race, will experience pain. The challenge is, can you make your pain purposeful? How do you make your pain purposeful? You isolate the life lessons in the experience. Then you, if you can, you assist others who might be going through the same thing. And by virtue of that, you will benefit from it yourself. I think that's the secret. That's definitely how I come across you know, what I'm doing now is exactly that. I think that's really an amazing way to leave this conversation because we can get stuck in that victimhood mentality. And that is, I think that's a very empowering statement for people to ponder on. And I want to be able to get people to contact you far and wide because you are amazing. And I've absolutely loved this conversation. I feel energized. I was just saying to before, I've got like a back-to-back day. I'm about to go into another long meeting but you've really energized me and you've made me um, definitely feel that, yeah, we have got so many options at our disposal. So thank you for that. How can people contact you, find you, work with you? 
Okay, so you can find me at keyforchange.com. That's with the number four or F-O-R. I've purchased both sites to make life easier. You can find me on YouTube, keyforchange.com, Instagram. It's all the same handle, keyforchange. And like I said, you know, I have a course called Pain Into Purpose because I want to teach people the principles. And I've also just developed the self, um, the empaths, self-protection course to give people the skills to best equip themselves for life who are highly empathic who give and don't get back in return and are baffled depressed sad anxious i'm here to tell you you do not it, the, to care is not a curse it's a gift but with any gift comes responsibility and it is your responsibility to protect the gift amazing Okay, well, I'll make sure that all of that is on the show notes anyway, so people can, you know, directly access you. And thank you so much. I know you're quite good. You're on radio programs and you're in newspapers and magazines and I'm excited for you. And I hope that you get lots of further success moving forwards as well. Because you've got lots of great wisdom to share. So thank you so much, Keely, and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Brilliant. Take care. So that's this week's episode done. I really hope you've enjoyed it and it's helped you in some small way. I listen to loads of podcasts and I've learned so much along my journey and now know I'm a real auditory learner. And if you're the same and you're often inspired by listening to thought-provoking conversations, please don't underestimate the power in sharing it to ensure other people can also be inspired. Not only does this help your friends, but it also lets the host know how beneficial the episode has been to them. It's such a quick thing to recommend a podcast on your social media, but it means the world to us and helps more like-minded people join in the conversation. So simply screenshot your phone and share the image of this podcast by text or on your social media to someone you think who needs to hear it. And the power of a recommendation really does work and creates a ripple effect for all those involved. Also, I've got a Facebook group called the Ambitious Mums Wellbeing and Lifestyle Chat. And my aim is to create a safe space to discuss any of the topics that have been mentioned in the episodes moving forwards. I'd really love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening and see you back here for the next episode. Mm